1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Donald Holbrook, author of The Al-Qaeda Doctrine, The Framing and Evolution of the Leadership's Public Discourse. The book is published by Bloomsbury within their series, New Directions in Terrorism Studies. Hi, Donald, and welcome to New Books in National Security. Delighted to have you here today to talk about your book, The Al-Qaeda Doctrine. Hi,
0: Paul. Thank you very much indeed for having me.
1: Absolutely. So um, I was wondering if perhaps you could start us off with a little bit about yourself and how you came to study this field. Yeah, so I
0: work for the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, which is a research unit within the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, We actually celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, this year, so uh, we've been at it for a while. And I've been working for them since 2008, and, and I kind of joined... Uh, the university because of the centre because it's known for having this focus on terrorism, political violence which I kind of gradually became more interested in during my postgraduate studies which you know, I'd focused on different kind of security issues more conventional security issues, strategic studies and so on, but became gradually more interested in terrorism, political violence and, and that took me to St Andrews and the CSTV and and that's really where uh, uh, where I kind of had the opportunity to develop those interests further and and, uh, had the opportunity to research some of these topics within the centre.
1: So how did you come to begin work on this particular project, uh, the Al-Qaeda Doctrine? Well, this was
0: part of of my PhD research at St. Andrews. I was interested in uh, trying to get a kind of longitudinal perspective on how the leadership of Al Qaeda had presented itself, had presented its movement, and how we could kind of identify trends over time, looking at the public discourse only rather than getting a kind of uh, a, a snapshot. I wanted to try and get a sense of of the issues there that were evolving over time, and uh, we had a, uh, we're beginning to build up a database of those communiques. And I kind of begun by participating as an intern in collecting those communiqués and then gradually thinking about how we can build up a database, how we can code those kind of uh, uh, statements and how we can analyze them. And, and that gradually, I mean, initially was a master's thesis and then one thing led to the another, and uh, and uh, became part of my PhD research and then became my thesis and the thesis became a a, a book once I'd had the opportunity to look at it again and, and work it into the manuscript. So...
1: So well, this book, uh, as you alluded to, it deals with a pretty significant output of al-Qaeda's public communications. So uh, you examined over 260 statements from bin Laden and Zawahiri. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering what some of the methodological issues that you encountered were in terms of gathering these, uh, translating them um, and analyzing just such a large body of work.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that was by, by far the most time consuming bit. And as I said, we'd begun to build up a database internally of communiques from, uh, government translation networks primarily. And then we, we begun to add to that purely through open source research of, uh, compilation volumes that provided access to these kind of communiques. And then, of course, beginning to trawl through, uh, um, websites online, Al Qaeda link websites and forums, as well as uh, other web repositories that provided access to this kind of material. And uh, Al Qaeda, indeed, uh, particularly uh, over the past few years, uh, began to provide some of its own translations, and that offered added opportunities for us to triangulate some of the material that we already already gathered. So, so there was that. Kind of build up of of data over some years, which I uh, uh, participated in, and, and that created a data set which I could then deal with. Uh, and that uh, that was kind of the data that we had. And what we then what I then had to uh, think about was ways in which to approach that uh, material, given the volume that I was dealing with. And there's two things I did. One of them is very practical, which was to uh, Put put up a database, essentially, and uh, come up with a grading scheme of coding this material, trying to break each statement down into categories and putting material from each statement into the database. And then the kind of more theoretical part of it was to design the database along the lines of some of the literature on these kind of uh, uh, discourses of movements. And that's why I got into uh, uh, looking at the literature on framing, how leaderships frame their message, appealing to audiences and so on. So there's this kind of practical way of, of dealing with large data sets and putting it into a database, and then the more theoretical way of, of thinking about framing, thinking about how uh, uh, some of the theoretical literature deals with datasets of this kind that predate Al-Qaeda. I mean, this is stuff that was being done in the 70s, uh, done in the 80s, and I kind of uh, uh, adapted some of that to the dataset we're creating uh, for the Al-Qaeda statements and communiques.
1: Okay. So... I mean, many of our readers will probably be familiar, but uh, early on in your book, you offer a great background on al-Qaeda's early days, uh, beginning with those meetings in Peshawar between Abdul Azam Osama bin Laden, and Ayman al-Zawahiri. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could just offer perhaps a brief summary of al-Qaeda's emergence in the, the late 80s and sort of early 90s when uh, you started to see some of, these, uh, some of these statements.
0: Yeah, so al-Qaeda emerged Really, out of a determination to continue what the participants in, in what became Al Qaeda saw as the great success of the jihad against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the late 1980s, that it was seen uh, uh, that the efforts to mobilize uh, elements of the Muslim community to participate. Uh, uh, in this fighting against the Soviets that had been tremendously successful and that there was momentum there, and that there was uh, that there were opportunities to continue that momentum and and focus that energy from Afghanistan onto a number of other scenarios and uh, the the guys and bin Laden in particular became obviously the the uh, fundamental figure within the the organization. Uh, was keen to focus that energy on on the Arabian Peninsula, on Yemen in particular. At the time, uh, Al Qaeda at that point had had incorporated elements from um, veterans of jihad from from Egypt and elsewhere who were interested in applying that energy onto some of their regions. And then gradually, out of out of these kind of efforts, we see Al Qaeda emerging as a more focused effort to apply this energy. Uh, and this methodology to uh, a more of a global movement which is more focused on 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 the kind of grander enemies the US and the western lines in addition to uh, local enemies in the Middle East and they kind of grouped the two of them together and presented al qaeda as an organization and as a movement as a concept to incorporate the kind of efforts and energies to try and target these enemies and, and take the jihad forward into the
1: '90s and develop it on uh, 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 over the years. Interesting how early on you kind of illustrate this tension that there there seemed to have been within the group in terms of um, where to focus, whether it's sort of the the near enemy which for Zawahiri you know was very much Egypt yeah. uh, for bin Laden, you know would be the regimes in the Arabian Peninsula um, versus you know what seemed to evolve a little bit later. Uh, which was that uh, sort of overseas focus on the imperialist oppressor, Um, uh, the the sort of great Satan, uh, as it were. Um, And I think that that seems to be a dichotomy that you point to a number of times that sort of seems to have continued throughout Al-Qaeda's history, really, that it's always, well, is it the near enemy or the far enemy that that we should be focusing on? Do do you think that that's accurate?
0: I think so, but that that dichotomy is also, I think, slightly more complex than than we often think because they also conflate the near-enemy, far-enemy thing. The the U.S. could be and was presented as a as a near-enemy in the local context, in the Arab, Arabian Peninsula, for example, with bases there. It was a far-enemy because it was based far away, but it was a near-enemy in the context of the alliance structures in terms of backing up local regimes and so on and so forth. So it's, it's not necessarily always clear how uh, these two categories play out in the statements of of the leadership, but there's certainly something which is always there, Uh, and I think it's something which uh, creates problems in terms of the consistency of the message as well, because you get, in terms of prioritization, if if you as a reader or or a consumer of the media message that al-Qaeda is putting out there, it's often unclear in terms of where most of the blame is seen to lie, and as a consequence of that, what the leadership proposes you should do about it. Uh, and there was, a, uh, which wasn't included in the book, but it's the nature of, of the material that was included in the book. The most recent interview with Ayman al Zawahiri, uh, with As Sahab, who, as I talked about in my book, is on a number of these, these kind of mock interviews with. Uh, al-Qaeda's primary media wing, which is called al-Sahab. And the last interview uh, uh, mentioned fairly early on, after talking about Syria for a little bit, you know, we haven't talked about Egypt for a while, would you like to talk about Egypt? Which I thought was hilarious, because Ahmad al has always talked about Egypt. He was always, every opportunity <laughs> he gets, he will talk about Egypt, and he will talk about America and the context of Egypt. But that is something that is always constant there. And it's kind of a conflation of uh, the grand enemy mixed with the supposed impact of its ideas and, and uh, legal structures and influence on the local enemy, which would be secular governance in the Middle East. So it's, it's the, the two categories are there. They're always constant, but the kind of boundaries between them are not always very clear. I think that's the kind of message that I would be trying to get across in the book
1: was was interesting from from many perspectives but one of the ways in which i found it interesting is that you do break down um, and sort of cast doubt upon many of these traditional dichotomies that have been um, bandied about in terms of al-Qaeda or terrorism, uh, Islamic terrorism in general. Uh, and, and that w- that was a good example. So uh, you cited a 2007 West Point report uh, which assessed that al-Qaeda's leadership has historically actually preferred press releases over battlefield preparedness. Yeah. So do you think you could briefly discuss that relationship between al-Qaeda's operations? versus its sort of PR, strategic communications efforts?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obvious that, and I mean, others will have talked about that in, in, in uh, uh, much more detail, but the Al-Qaeda leadership behind the scenes has, of course, been involved and intimately involved in the organizations of different attacks uh, and major attacks, uh, including 9-11, of course. Uh, uh, but, but I feel that the point that, that West Point report was making was very valid And that is the emphasis that the leadership has always placed on putting out communiqués, even when they didn't have the kind of savvy Internet campaigns that we now see with ISIS, even if we go back to the 90s, you know, the, the the effort to which bin Laden would go to give press interviews, for example, with Pakistani media, members of British and American media organizations as well, I think is quite telling. Ayman I al-Zawahri has always placed a huge emphasis on writing books and getting them out there and publishing them and translating them and, uh, uh, and making sure that that content is available uh, and even when they talk about their own contribution, their own efforts and I think uh, uh, for example when uh, Ayman al-Zawahri is kind of reflecting on the career of Bin Laden after Bin Laden had just been killed he talked about you know, the generation of the message is something Bin Laden was really good at. And that was really what Bin Laden has always emphasized. That was the that was the key point that he was always trying to secure. You know, that, that was what he was trying to put out there. Because participation in attacks, it's important that that's something which helped define Al-Qaeda. But then it's the, the at least as, as the leadership of Al-Qaeda and Oman manzar in particular put it, it's the communicates. It's the it's the media arm that is central in terms of producing a legacy for Al Qaeda. This is something which lives on, and we can, and you know, sympathizers and observers, and those interested in Al Qaeda, uh, and those who have been impacted by Al Qaeda, will continue to go back to because this kind of creates a bit of a. a, a, a Uh, a story, a narrative that tells what al-Qaeda is all about and its agenda. So I think in that sense uh, they were right, that this is something that they always recognized from the very beginning, be that through virtual means or more kind of old-school ways of speaking to the press, that this was always at the top of their agenda. So uh, uh, I would agree with that, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to
1: really dissect that output and how it evolved over the years. So turning to a bit of a different topic, we've seen the emergence and the sort of catastrophic results in some cases of the Arab Spring in the last few years. And this has sort of represented a huge sea change in many of Al-Qaeda's core countries of interest uh, in the Middle East and and in North Africa. So I was wondering if you might address how Al-Qaeda has publicly responded to these nationalist pro-democratic uprisings um, in the Middle East and North Africa?
0: Yeah, um, I think it's clear that uh, in the immediate term, the Arab Spring was a disaster for al-Qaeda because it had always talked about the need for regime change in those countries and regions you mentioned, and it had always said that the only way for regime change would be through violent jihad, and that other methods of uh, kind of uniting people and talking governments, such as, you know, a uh, little bit of street violence, but peaceful uprising protests, sit-ins, and all of this kind of stuff, was useless. And Naim el said it explicitly, even referred to some uh, uh, earlier... Uh, protests in Cairo and as kind of examples of how this could never do anything, you have to really uh, engage in some sort of revolutionary warfare and militancy and terrorism in order to uh, topple government. So in terms of methods that the Al-Qaeda leadership has always presented as being the only way forward, uh, was thoroughly discredited. In terms of their, their grievances, so in terms of the substance of their political message on a local level, and a regional level, it also changed things dramatically because they didn't have these these uh, these kind of figures like Hosni Mubarak and others to constantly point to as as you know reasons for keeping uh, keeping the kind of uh, method that Al Qaeda was putting forward alive. Because now all of a sudden, that was removed, and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood had taken over. Even though I'm also I mean, who's been very critical of the Muslim Brotherhood that was nevertheless going to be a political entity which he couldn't just dismiss or, or talk about as being illegitimate uh, in the immediate term. So so there was definitely a kind of uh, a crisis point for al-Qaeda. It was definitely something that they had to deal with. It coincided, of course, with the death of bin Laden and the various other calamities, organizational structures were weakening. Their ability to uh, to seem like credible actors was being weakened anyway, so it was catastrophic for them in the short term for these reasons. But what they began to do very quickly, uh, and and Imad Zawahri, you know, developed a, a multi-part series of communicators to the Egyptians was to say that you know that there's there's massive euphoria in Egypt in particular, but in the Middle East in general that won't last. You know, you just wait and see and the old powers will come back. All of the old kind of systems of of elite governance will take over. You know, this kind of system of of apparently legitimate government and rule by Sharia is not going to last. He, He picked out the Morsi government a little bit and probably would have done more of that if the Morsi government hadn't been toppled, which of course it was. And as soon as that happened, I'm also very predictably and others in the al-Qaeda leadership came out and said, well, you know, we told you so. This is what happens when you allow a mass movement that hasn't thought about the consequences of what it's doing, hasn't thought about the legal structures that should be in place, hasn't thought about the legitimacy of the uprising, who's in charge, etc. This is what happens. Other people hijack uh, what you were trying to do. It's half-baked. And uh, uh, as a result, you know, nothing's changed. And, and uh, you know, a, a number of the uh, events that have happened since then in Egypt played, played to, to uh, al-Qaeda's propaganda, effectively, because you can legitimately show that some things indeed haven't changed. And, and uh, some of these issues uh, uh, really weren't going to be improved as quickly as people thought at the time. So the Arab Spring catastrophe in the short term and, and they kind of went in an in, in, in overdrive in terms of trying to deal with that. And then in the longer term, it seems as if the impact of the Arab Spring is becoming less problematic for the al-Qaeda leadership as many observers thought it would be at the time. It's managed to deal with it in terms of the rhetoric and it's managed to show in places like Syria that there are plenty of opportunities for jihadi activities. Um, regardless, and, and you know the new Sisi regime in Egypt uh, will show that that you know their case, at least for their sympathizers, is perfectly valid. So I, I think that's in terms of uh, kind of in terms of breaking down their approach. You can you can see it in those terms, short term and more longer term.
1: Mm-hmm. So. In Chapter 3, uh, you talk about jihadi ideology, and specifically al-Qaeda's ideology. Um, you sort of give a backgrounder on Salafism uh, as the ideological context for al-Qaeda's extremism. Uh, so I was hoping that you could elaborate on how Salafist thought informs the al-Qaeda narrative and the al-Qaeda doctrine that you outline in your book.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are elements of of kind of puritanical radical Islamist thought that began to develop uh, uh, in the 40s in South Asia and that began to impact fringe elements of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in, in the 50s and the 60s and that in turn had an impact on, on some of the kind of old school militants who fought in uh, Afghanistan against the Soviets and that in turn had an impact on the uh, uh, the two key figures that shaped uh, uh, the Al-Qaeda doctrine as I presented it in my book. So there is this kind of, it's not as if Al-Qaeda invented all of the components of what they're putting forward. It's certainly based on elements of of, uh, these kind of ideological uh, 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 neo-Salafist notions that uh, were being shaped uh, during the 20th century, midpoint of the 20th century onwards. Uh, Puritan Islamist solutions were presented effectively as a panacea replacing pan-Arabism and other nationalism and other solutions that have been tested in the region. Uh, And these kind of fringe elements presenting uh, uh, religion as uh, a method of organizing people, making sure they're focused on uh, uh, a set number of goals, emphasizing unity, emphasizing Uh, unity of people regardless of affiliation to particular uh, countries or regions, that really is based on some of these salafistic principles that were being uh, thought about uh, during those kind of years and there's key points like beginning to think about how to justify violence against non-combatants and uh, beginning to present the solution, the kind of long-term objectives of Warfare on these kind of aspects, and the delegitimizing of governments, and these kind of core issues that the Al Qaeda leaders developed, but they picked up from individuals like Maududi in Pakistan, like Saad Qutb in Egypt, and later on uh, Abdullah zama and others were fighting uh, uh, the Soviets in Afghanistan. So it's it's kind of adding to, shaping, and evolving, developing a doctrine. The bits of a doctrine that were already being shaped in the jihadi context from the
1: fifties, sixties and, and uh and beyond interesting. So is Al Qaeda even on the far fringes of the Salafist uh, or Wahhabi spectrum of thought um, in terms of being sort of the fringe of the fringe?
0: They are definitely a fringe of the fringe, uh, primarily because of the methods they use. I mean, it's no secret, obviously, that uh, you know the, 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 the innovation that they try to bring to the rhetoric is trying to find ways in which to justify uh, murder, not only of, of non-Muslim civilians, but also as an way of accident or because of a process of delegit- delegitimization murder of Muslims as well uh, uh, and that clearly puts them on a very extremist fringe in the fact that they're prepared to uh, endorse violence participate in, and organize violence against these kind of groups of, of arguably uh, uh, people who are certainly protected according to the Quran and, and, and uh, religious doctrine certainly puts it on on the extremist fringe But but The notion of of extremism is interesting in the context of al-Qaeda because there are other bits of it that show a degree of flexibility where other Salafi groups, including uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and Saqqawi and subsequently, of course, ISIS today, show that you can get a lot more extreme, you can get a lot more rigid. Uh, um, In particular, uh, I argued in my Book and there's no consensus on this, but I argued in my book that the Al Qaeda leadership, at least in, you know publicly, is much less sectarian than a lot of other uh, Salaf fringe entities. It's much less obsessed with the kind of Shia question than Sarkawi was, from, for example, and it didn't really seem to see the point of it. You know, it had emphasised other targets and other issues in its communiques rather than the sectarian thing, and it's also been much less prone to uh, uh, use excommunication, to excommunication large swathes of Muslims and present them as non-believers and therefore targets of, of violence. And it's kind of these elements that, that we can see were always there in, in, uh, in the leadership discourse that I talked about in my book. But these issues, they're now kind of bringing to the fore in order to distinguish themselves from... Uh, ISIS in particular, you know, the kind of tech theory, excommunication element is is not as prominent in the Al-Qaeda discourse as perhaps many would think. And it continues to be more flexible uh, in some respects and particularly in terms of sectarian issues. So it's, it's, it's a difficult one, extreme clearly because of the violence, because of uh, justifying civilian targeting, uh, but more flexible when it comes to these kind of issues to do with uh, uh, different strands of Islam and who to incorporate in the in-group and who to put in the out-group.
1: So there's a major debate uh, that you address in Chapter 4 concerning al-Qaeda's problem diagnosis, what it thinks is wrong and how it thinks things should be fixed. Uh, So there's this debate of whether al-Qaeda hates the West for its freedoms, uh, as some said after 9-11, or whether it's instead responding to Western foreign policy, as many scholars have suggested, vis-a-vis interventions in the region, support of dictators in the Middle East, and so forth. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your findings on this subject, because they were very interesting.
0: Absolutely, and I think, again, there uh, we come to the issue of of dichotomies that we talked about earlier with respect to priorities. Uh, you know, this notion of the haters for who we are or the haters for what we do is really not helpful because it has always been both. And and that's the point that I was trying to mention and in, in, in emphasise in the book. And in, in a way, I mean, it, I just followed the evidence, effectively. If you see the justifications that the al-Qaeda leadership puts forward publicly for doing what it's doing, you see elements of both. And the two are intertwined. So obviously, foreign policy: U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia, Iraqi sanctions, Palestine. Although I talked about Palestine in the conclusions, it's a difficult issue. But nevertheless, these are, you know, foreign policy things. And going further back, issues to do with colonialism and mandates following the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These things are very important. They're absolutely clearly used to justify violence. They probably motivated the individuals involved personally and they clearly set forward in that respect. But the point that I was trying to argue, if you read uh, these statements and communiques at length and develop a a substantial database of them and you read all of this stuff, you're not selective in what you're looking at. You also see much more kind of value-based notions used to justify al qaeda 's violence to justify al qaedas stance against the west in particular so things to do with inclusive uh, systems of governance constitutional issues and when I al has written a book about the fact that the Pakistani constitution is not based exclusively on Sharia law and pointed to things such as it allows women to participate in politics and all these kind of issues but are also put forward as grievance arguments that are seen as just as strong. You know, the, the, the French ban on religious symbols in public places, which is presented as a ban on veils exclusively, was seen as part of neo-colonialism, aggressive foreign policy, even though, to most other observers, of course, it wouldn't. So uh, I think there's a danger there that we we create these dichotomies which really aren't helpful, because if you follow the evidence, uh, uh, we really see that both Issues, if you like, both values, to put it crudely, and foreign policy, kind of tangible issues to do with sovereignty, Iraq like war, and that kind of stuff. Both of them are woven together into a grievance narrative that Al Qaeda has evolved and developed over 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 time. Now, there are things like, you know, the, uh, uh, the 2005 6 publication of cartoons in newspapers in Denmark, which have nothing to do with governments and, you know, governments in the US and Britain and elsewhere came out and condemned them. Uh, These are presented as part of the aggression and hatred for Islam that's somehow embedded in the West in the rhetoric of the al-Qaeda leadership. So the point I was trying to make is those dichotomies that you mentioned are not helpful. If you look at the evidence, the story is actually much more complex than we often give it credit for
1: Though I thought it was interesting when they're talking about terrorism, Zawahiri and Bin Laden, and its efficacy, they make some points concerning, for example, in 2005 we struck the UK and this was the political response vis-à-vis intervention in Iraq. So when they're speaking about the efficacy of terrorism, it seems that, that they're not saying, we attacked this country and it ceased to be a democracy or something sort of very high level like this. They're saying this terrorist act was committed and therefore this foreign policy change w- was successfully implemented from from uh, from the terrorist group's point of view. Uh, I thought that was interesting that they, they took the time in their public communiques to point out different incidents where there had been attacks and the West had allegedly responded accordingly
0: yeah yeah no, absolutely and, and i mean the, the, in terms of what they're trying to achieve they've also presented you know uh, attacks and responses to attacks and the immediate political consequences and economic consequences to attacks as kind of baby steps moving us to the greater goal which is is obviously the, the kind of grand narrative of the age of bliss which which comes with the creation of the caliphate etc uh but uh, but you're absolutely right in terms of short term uh, impact, they're very focused and always spent time in their communiqués to talk about the impact of these attacks locally in terms of foreign policy, in terms of domestic policy, uh, and of course with uh, with uh, uh, the financial crisis as well, a number of communiqués where they try to make a direct correlation between 9-11 and the cost of the Iraq war, and all of these various calculations that you can do once you've argued that 9-11 had such an impact on U.S. foreign policy and the foreign policy of other countries, that cost so much money, put the Western world in a weaker position in order to respond to uh, uh, the subsequent economic crisis and therefore created such a great economic depression. So it's kind of trying to spread and and, and, and add to uh, this kind of notion of the impacts of its attacks as much as possible and they use the communiques uh, to do that and even going back to, to attacks like 9-11 many, many years ago and even before then to try and show that, you know, this is the impact that we've had and in, in order kind of to, to spin it out and to try and make, make sure they can, uh, it keeps resonating and they keep to c- c- continue to weave that into the
1: narrative when they talk about more contemporary things as well. In Chapter 4, you go on to speak about uh, Al-Qaeda's problem diagnosis, so its efforts to construct a narrative of grievance. Um, The breadth of these grievances were astounding uh, in terms of you actually list them, which was very helpful, and they range from... You know, things we would expect, such as support to dictatorial regimes, to UN lack of response to climate change. Uh, they're very broad. So I was hoping that you could discuss some of al-Qaeda's principal grievances and al-Qaeda's proposed solutions to those grievances.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, as I say, it is complicated because there is so much there. And I think this is also when you begin to find a difference between Bin Laden and Naim al which I talked about a little bit, but it's important to recognize. Bin Laden, obviously, was the public face of the al-Qaeda leadership for so, such a long time, always very concise in his communications, And in terms of grievances, it was, you know, American foreign policy and America and the entity of America and everything it stands for, plus its allies and its influence in the region. That is incredibly bad, and what we're going to do about it is to unite, rise up, you support your vanguard, your vanguard is al-Qaeda, you can support it physically or even just verbally, and uh, gradually we'll begin to bring down this great Satan, as we did uh, with the Soviets in the 1980s. Then you get to Ayman al-Zawahiri, who has always been much more expansive, his communiques are much longer, He's often easily dismissed for that reason. You know, he's the guy who's known for staring at a camera for two hours and issuing a communiqué, which presumably very few people can be bothered to go through. But as a result of that, there's much more meat on the bones. There's much more stuff to look at. And that's where you begin to see all these issues to do with, you know, uh, uh, the UN, the, the, the system of global governance, all these kind of less tangible things Uh, And as well as more specific things. And in terms of al-Qaeda's responses to that, that's really dependent on what he's talking about each time. So when he's talking about, you know, the failure of the Kyoto Protocol, the fact that, you know, we haven't dealt with climate change and all these kind of very broad things... The the model of al-Qaeda effectively as being, you know, another way of of uniting people against a common problem that doesn't respect borders. Al-Qaeda doesn't respect borders, so therefore that's kind of, you know, let's think think along along those lines. That's on one, one end of the spectrum, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you'll have, you know, very specific things like some guy made a YouTube video uh, called The Innocence of Muslims, which uh, uh, is very derogatory uh, towards the Islamic faith, and, and you know, who's going to do anything about it? What, what, you know, again, Al-Qaeda is your is your answer. You support us, and we'll speak up for you. We'll do something about it. We'll make sure that this doesn't happen again. So it's really, you know, a lot of this is about the Al-Qaeda leadership picking itself up, effectively, putting itself as, as the solution. It's, it's less about a, a, a specific organization. It's more about a response, a method that they present as being almost a panacea, the key to resolving all of these huge, uh, this vast range of issues that 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 range from the very specific to the very general kind of you know problems that the world is facing.
1: Absolutely. So there are various audiences that. Al-Qaeda is directing its message to, and you address this in Chapter 6, discussing the different segments of the world population that Zawahiri and bin Laden are speaking to in these communiques, whether those are extremists, Uh, ordinary Muslims all over the Muslim world, Western citizens, or even in some cases when they're speaking directly to Western leaders and uh, trying to set themselves um, on that same level as President Obama or uh, whatever leader they're addressing. Did you find the message that they were trying to deliver varied depending on which of these audiences they were targeting? Were they perhaps more conciliatory when speaking to the normal, average Muslim population versus when they were addressing Western citizens? I think these things change quite a lot over time, and and I think they've been responsive
0: to uh, events as well. So yeah, normally, obviously, you would expect that that would be the, the fundamental change, hostility against non-Muslims, they're the out-group, and, and kind of positive appeals towards the in-group being Muslims. But that must, that's not necessarily the case. And there are a few curious examples of uh, positive appeals towards the effective out-group. You know, the, 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 the were, there was a period when the al-Qaeda leadership was presenting itself as the vanguard, not only for Muslims but, but for the global disenfranchised as well. And, and Ayman al-Zawahi would talk about how he just couldn't understand how African Americans could join the US military, given how they'd been uh, they'd been fighting for their civil rights for such a long time, I and mean, you know clearly the american system wasn't uh, you know didn't pro- didn't provide the answers for their questions um, they were still battling racism and, and they should think about uh, an inclusive community that that Al Qaeda was supposedly presenting instead so there were these kind of odd examples of of very positive appeals towards the out group and then again. Uh, negative appeals towards the in-group. So, so remarkable uh, uh, episodes of of the Al Qaeda leadership really uh, be- becoming, well, Ayman al Zawahiri, I should say, in particular, becoming quite stark in their rhetoric towards Pakistanis, towards the Palestinians, uh, towards the Iraqis. Whenever they feel there, there's you know there's pressure, there's something going on. Uh, it really is not necessarily a message which is always sympathetic to Muslim communities that are suffering due to hardship, due to uh, uh, war fighting and turmoil. It's often very critical, and al-Qaeda, I should say, is not unique in this respect, very critical of the lack of their response. And I, I think I even used a quote from one of the communicators in one of my sub where Amal Zawachri talked about uh, the nation having failed to support Al Qaeda, which which is a remarkable uh, uh, flip over from from what he had always said, uh, which is that you know if if, if Al Qaeda fails to uh, reach out to, to the Ummah and mobilize the Ummah, it's obviously something we're doing wrong. It's our fault. It's not the fault of the Ummah. You know, it begins to flip that and saying the Ummah has failed to support us. So so. Yes, the, the it would seem intuitively that, you know, hostile towards the outgroup non Muslims, friendly, sympathetic towards the in group Muslims, but it's not always that clear cut and there's that nuance that I was trying to get to uh, uh, in that chapter you
1: mentioned. Turning to more recent events, uh, the Islamic State uh, (ISIL, ISIS) uh, has very much been at the forefront of the world's focus recently, mm-hmm. and this has been, in some ways, at the expense of Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is not mentioned as much uh, in the news uh, as it as it always has been. Uh, n- recently, a senior Al Qaeda official, Abu Dujana Al Basha, stated, and I'll quote here, We call to restore the rightly guided caliphate on the prophetic method, and not on the method of deviation, lying, breaking promises, and abrogating allegiances. A caliphate that stands with justice, consultation, and coming together, and not with oppression, infidel branding the Muslims, killing the monotheists, and dispersing the ranks of the Mujahideen. So I was hoping that you could help us to unpack this very loaded statement from Al-Qaeda and explain Al-Qaeda's public response so far towards the Islamic State and towards its declaration of a caliphate. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talked earlier about uh, how Al-Qaeda is extreme and it's certainly extreme in some ways. It's not it's it's within this particular con- context of jihadi movements less extreme or, or arguably more flexible in other respects and the crucial issue there is excommunication and how to deal with uh, muslims and and, th- and that's a, a principal issue that the al qaeda leadership has brought out now in order to do two things delegitimize isis and present itself i e al qaeda if not the organization, but the method, you know, of, of Al-Qaeda and its way of thinking as the right way forward. And the way in which it's done that is to say the way ISIS supposedly formed the caliphate is illegitimate because of the way in which they deal with other Muslims. They are takfiri. They have even been compared to, uh, uh, the Kharijites, which were, were were a sect who abandoned uh, the caliph in uh, uh, Ali ibn Talib, you know, back in the formative years of Islam, as someone who they abandoned the righteous leader, they seceded, effectively, from the righteous, from the righteous community, uh, because they were, they were so extreme, because they were fringe actors. And this kind of language is being used now to describe uh, ISIS, and that's what al qaeda has tried to do so so legitimize itself if you like to emphasize you know we have the way forward because we're more measured in our approach we we are not overemphasizing sectarian issues we're not overemphasizing murder for the sake of murder uh, and in fact we only deal obviously with legitimate violence and we don't excommunicate for the sake of excommunicating and therefore righteous uh, uh Righteous adversaries, uh, and that's the way in which Al Qaeda has tried to delegitimize ISIS. Uh, you, you could say, of course, that the only reason of doing that is because Al Qaeda has talked about uh, having a caliphate for for very many years now and, and, and not managed to do anything about it. All of a sudden, ISIS comes along and and not only has a caliphate, it has millions of dollars and uh, lots of cool military hardware and uh, is dominating the the foreign policies on domestic policies of of all the world's major powers. So so there is obviously that kind of very practical element to this, but it doesn't mean to say that there aren't some uh, uh, more interesting, more kind of in-depth points to the way in which the al-Qaeda leadership has responded to to ISIS. And I think you, you might begin to see... I, elements of ISIS certainly responding to that, being conscious of the fact that they're, if they're not careful, the fact that they're seen as being too extreme and al-Qaeda therefore being less extreme, that that ha- has uh, uh, an impact on the ability of both organisations to sustain the jihad uh, in the long term. And it's all about... Knowing where the boundaries lie, knowing what you can sell to people, knowing what you can sustain, uh, and, and that's really the crucial factor here in, in, uh, in the kind of AQ's denunciation of ISIS.
1: We've seen a fragmentation of the broader jihadi community in terms of camps that are becoming pro-ISIS versus camps uh, that remain pro-Al Qaeda in terms of what you've seen, whether that might be on the extremist web forums, on social media, uh, in, in in other venues?
0: Yeah, and indeed, I mean, I think this adds to the crisis uh, that, that Al Qaeda has to deal with with ISIS. Not only is ISIS presenting an alternative uh, that... Uh, Al-Qaeda is certainly up against. Uh, it, it's also exposing uh, what I think we've always known, or known for a while, but there is no conformity when it comes to Al-Qaeda. You know, there are Al-Qaeda affiliates, the uh, uh, Islamic Maghreb, uh, the North Africa affiliate, and the Arabian Peninsula affiliate, voices within them that have certainly come out and, uh, and said nice things about ISIS, been impressed by their rise to power, been impressed by their ability to uh, uh, take over Sways of Iraq and Syria. And certainly now with a uh, military campaign against ISIS, I would imagine we would see more of that, uh, which is, is, is going to be interesting. It, it, it can pan out in two different ways. One of them is that the al-Qaeda leadership continues to try to kind of rein in all of these affiliates that would otherwise be tempted to say nice things about ISIS, or well, the other one would be that that it, it kind of creates opportunities for these rifts uh, to be mended between ISIS and uh, the Nusra Front, for example, in Syria. So so uh, uh, it, it's certainly uh, a new development that, that could have a substantial impact. But in the short term, and, and thus far at least, uh, the fact that affiliates have said nice things about ISIS goes to show that the organizational control uh, of the Al-Qaeda leadership is is pretty weak. And in fact, as always happens, and as, as I talked about in the book, and as I think it's pretty obvious, when these kind of organizational tangible things begin to cause problems, they start issuing statements, trying to respond to that, trying to make sure that looks as if that was always meant to be the case. And I think if if you look at some of the more recent communiques from, from Ayman al-Zawah in particular, he's begun to Kind of emphasise and highlight the fact that he sees Al Qaeda as a movement, as, as an idea, almost a kind of a concept. It's it's not important what individual groupings within the umbrella do necessarily, because this is a this is the concept, the legacy, the idea of Al Qaeda that they've been building up over over the years. So um, it's kind of a, a, a way in which to try and get the discourse to to. Uh, present justifications for the situation that they're facing.
1: In chapter seven, you move on to discuss the Muslim world's reception of Al Qaeda's ideology and Al Qaeda's proposed responses to these many grievances that they elucidate. How successful has Al Qaeda been in shifting the Muslim world's popular opinion towards its very fringe position?
0: I don't think they have been very successful at all. Um, and that's bad for al-Qaeda on the surface, because obviously it presents itself as a vanguard of the masses, and if the masses never respond, then that looks very bad. And the masses certainly haven't responded, uh, you know, and, and, and we can see that clearly, that, that the prognosis of the leadership hasn't been accepted, and, and as I talked about in the chapter, you know, there are issues to do with, with uh, its diagnosis uh, as, as well that aren't necessarily... Uh, 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 don't necessarily reflect uh, what appears to be mainstream uh, public opinion in in these kind of areas. But we of course know that Al Qaeda is a terrorist organization. It is an extremist organization and it is not unusual for terrorist groups, be they jihadi or any other kind of terrorist group to claim uh, either that they already have mass support or that they will have mass support and that that is inevitable uh, and, uh, in reality, of course, being a fringe operator with far fewer supporters than they claim they should have. So uh, in that sense, yes, it's a problem for al-Qaeda and it's, a, it's interesting, but it's far from unique. Uh, uh, and I think that's a point that I was trying to make as well. It isn't necessarily a sign of the demise of al-Qaeda, the fact that they haven't mobilized the vast swathes of people. They said they would mobilize because that was never really going to happen. It's just not in the nature of the group unless, you know, you you extrapolate it to a kind of different scenario where you have, which which I think is is unthinkable in the case of of al-Qaeda, but where, for for example, we have nationalist paramilitary groups becoming mainstream political parties, and then they can begin to see uh, popular support increasing. But, uh, you know, when that's not uh, uh, in the equation, and I don't think it is here, Then that's not something to be expected, really, with
1: with respect to al-Qaeda. I think it's interesting that al-Qaeda tries to portray itself as a vanguard, and a vanguard that is, in fact, attempting to inspire very openly Muslims, not only in the Arab world and North Africa, but across the world, and that they've made a very... Uh, concerted effort to inspire so-called lone wolf terrorism by extremists in the West. And I've always found it interesting that although there are, no doubt, tens, hundreds of thousands of individuals in the West who may hold sympathetic views or may agree with some points of al-Qaeda's ideology, there have been really so very few uh, lone wolf attacks where people have really bought wholesale uh, Al Qaeda's message of violence. Uh, I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah,
0: I think. Uh, uh, I mean, part of that just lies in the nature of terrorism, and a lot of people will share in the outrage, will share in the grievance. Uh, a very, very small proportion of those people will be prone or prepared or even thought about doing anything about it. And even those who are keen to do anything about it might never get round to it. And might not have the capacity to do anything about it. Might not know what to do. They might find alternative ways in which to uh, do things they feel conforms to the to these kind of things. They might, you know, start blogging, or they might start doing other things on the internet or or, or other kinds of things. And in fact, there are other jihadi kind of manuals out there that say, you know, that's part of your participation in jihad if you just do things on the internet. So uh, I think that's not necessarily surprising that this hasn't created the kind of wave of of terrorism that they were perhaps hoping to see or expecting to see, because, and this is not unique to jihadi terrorism, the barriers uh, to becoming a terrorist are huge, the practical barriers psychological barriers, there are constraints uh, that you need to overcome uh, and certainly from the relatively substantial or or, or at least relatively large proportions of people that would agree with part of the grievance and part of the diagnosis, the, the, the proportion of people prepared to do something about it which is violent is always going to be vastly less uh, significant and the proportion of that tiny category of people who will genuinely be successful, it's going to be smaller still. And and that's a kind of core principle that applies to all terrorism and and al-Qaeda and the wider
1: jihadi realm is not unique in that respect. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm wondering if you might give us a preview uh, for our listeners of what's next for you. Do you have any upcoming projects that you're working on at the moment? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, the, the, this, this book is based on a database of al-Qaeda leadership communiques, which I'm very keen to continue to maintain. And, and I think there will be interesting questions in the future about what happens after Ayman al-Zawahri is gone or what happens after the al-Qaeda central leadership kind of becomes completely dispersed who takes over, how does that compare? So I'd be keen to, to maintain that database, and that's, that, that's kind of related to another project that I'm working on in the CSTPV, which, which is looking at extremist media in context, and that's kind of branching out and trying to think about ways in which to uh, develop methodologies, looking at how we can process this, this kind of extremist media content and to move beyond jihadi realms, look more at comparative. Uh, uh, issues, how this compares with, for example, far-right discourses, and be conscious of, of uh, longitudinal trends. I'm always very keen to look at how things evolve, and uh, I'll be keen to do that in a comparative sense with, with this kind of material, jihadi material, alongside other
1: types of content from the far-right, for example. So those are some of the things I'm hoping to look at in the near future. We look forward to reading uh, the results. I uh, just want to thank you so much, uh, Donald, for joining us here on New Books and National Security. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you
0: very much indeed for having me. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.